An article written by Henry Walker in the February 15, 1996, Nashville scene. If there's one cow pie in the field, the Tennessean's Jeff Perlman will manage to step in it. About a year ago, the novice reporter wrote Not-So-Chosen Athletes, a bizarre piece lamenting the shortage of Jewish sports figures and criticizing Jewish parents for pushing their children to become doctors and lawyers. Two months later, Perlman infuriated the managers at Starwood, a big advertiser, by writing an uncomplimentary and error-filled description of the amphitheater's 1995 lineup. The paper apologized profusely and temporarily assigned Perlman to the police beat. A sports writer, for now, the paper's Enfant Terrible, found the cow pie again last week, charging that private Christian-run schools are a bad idea because Christians commit insensitive acts at games, like praying to Jesus and heckling opponents and referees. As an example, Perlman described the mother of an Ezel Harding student who kept shouting at opposing players, Hey, you A-head. That's right, you're an A-head. Perlman admitted he had no idea what exactly an A-head is, but implied it must be some obscure sectarian curse. On Sunday, Tennessean editor Frank Sutherland apologized for Perlman's prejudice against Christians and said the reporter's column, quote, should have been edited to make its point without being so offensive. The point of all this? It'll get better. Whatever you're going through as a journalist, it will get better. I promise. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Rich Cohen, the longtime journalist, screenwriter, and author of the excellent new book about his dad, The Adventures of Herbie Cohen, World's Greatest Negotiator. This is episode number 271. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Rich. First of all, thank you for doing this. Thank yeah. You. Your bookshelf is much more impressive than mine. You have a new book out, uh, The Adventures of Herbie Cohen, World's Greatest Negotiator. It's about your dad. Your dad is a fascinating, fascinating guy. The book is a fascinating, fascinating book. Here's my question. This is the nerdy author, uh, talking to author sort of thing. How do you convince your agent and a publishing house? Here's my next book I want to do. It's about my dad. He's really interesting. I think this will be great. Um, well, I've kind of been writing about my dad since the beginning. My first book was about Jewish gangsters. It was based on gangster stories my father told me. It's called Tough Jews. So I've sort of established that this is my subject matter, that my father is rife for material. He's very, very funny. And um, I'm lucky that I have had an editor who's kind of been in with, in with me for the long haul, that I'm kind of on a project of slowly trying to reconstruct my entire life. And um, just before that, I did, the, I did this Audible original about my, of one story about my father. And it was so uh, natural and it was so fun to write about him. I'm usually talking about him because he's just a very funny guy. Um, and then the weird thing happened when the book came out, which is when I was a kid, my father wrote this book, You Can Negotiate Anything, which sold, I sold like 2 million copies. It still outsells everything I've written every year to this day. And it came out in 1980 when I was in junior high. So I never had the idea that I'm going to be this great big bestselling writer that's going to uh, outdo my father because he set the marker too high. So I always kind of wanted to be uh, kind of more small niche kind of my heroes were like James Thurber and stuff. That's kind of what. So but now that with this, I come out with this book, people are reacting to it like because I'm telling my dad's lessons. It's like a self-help book to his lessons the way they did in 1980, because it's really helpful stuff that I've lived my whole life on. 
So weirdly now I feel like at this late age, I'm sort of using his material and flying under his weight, if that makes sense. So it turns out weirdly to be commercially, I don't think they thought about it this way, but commercially it's not that bad because he has a, he's got a big, he's a big cult hero to a lot of people. In my mind, there are two kinds of books you can write, which is two models, which is, all right, you're me. You have a Bo Jackson book coming out, just as an example. Now, Bo Jackson has a shot topic wise of selling a lot of copies, having nothing to do with me. It just might because He's a right. big topic. He's a big, it may not, but it may. And then there's kind of the Seabiscuit model, which is you write a book that's so brilliant and it's great and it's enrapturing that even though nobody remembers Seabiscuit and most people don't even give a shit about horse racing, the book just gets sets a buzz and sets a buzz and sets a buzz that it takes off. And I would love to write that book and I don't have the confidence in myself to write Well, that. it's a really interesting question. I was just talking about this, which is subject matter is everything, really. If you want to sell a lot of books, right. You know, and I've written books, like I'm writing an MBA book, as you know, I talked to you about it and I've written books about the bears like you have basically. And, and books about the Cubs. And that has a combination one, it's got the huge subject and two, it's got like a tribe. You identify a tribe that's interested in something. So without realizing a tough Jews, there's a tribe of these true crime people that, you know, I was motivated to write that book as much by Goodfellas as by anything. You know, that book, that movie kind of got in my head and I couldn't get it out of my head. So um, and then you're talking about something else, which is a, which is the, the story, the oddball story out of left field. Now, I don't know what your first job in publishing was, but my first job was I was a messenger at the New Yorker magazine. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of pressure on me by my father to go to law school to the point where I told him I wasn't going to law school. And he basically wrote applications for me in my name and got me rejected to almost 30 schools. <laughs> and, uh, and recently I found out he even did an interview. Now this is a, this is a, at the time a 70 year old guy from Bensonhurst, Brooklyn is doing an interview for me as me, which is absurd. But um, anyway, so I, I got to the New Yorker and I had this idea. I want to publish something because I thought that it would get him off my back a little bit. You know, and his reaction when I did publish something is, oh, great, this will be perfect for a law school application. This will get you into a better law school. That was his only reaction. But um, uh, at The New Yorker, like I wanted to write a talk of the town story. This is a long time ago, 1990, when they were unsigned. I was 21 years old and you couldn't write a big subject because those big subjects were covered by all the real writers. Right. If you're a messenger, you got to come up with a real weird idea that no one's thought of. And that was my training. It was never to go. So like one of the first stories I published as a talk of the town story was about the Mets, one of your subjects. Mm -hmm. But see, if I said I want to write about Keith Hernandez or Mackie Sasser's problems or whatever, they would have said, no, we got Roger Angel writing about baseball, you know. So I wrote about a guy who caught a foul ball in a Mets game and how that experience changed his life and how he wanted to open a restaurant next to Mickey Mantle's called The Guy Who Caught the Ball's Place. That was the way in. It was like a so that's always been the way I've kind of written story, thought of stories. And I've kind of had to train myself out of it, which is think of the story no one else has thought of. And usually when no one else has thought of it, it's for a reason. I freaking love that. You know, we're kind of met same age. We're members of a, of a the small generation between the big generations I always think of. So you always have to think of a slightly more clever way, you know, to get in. And that's something I remember my brother was bar mitzvah. My father invited Jimmy Carr. He invited Richard Nixon or something. He would always send these invitations randomly and you get the, I'm sorry, 
President Nixon will be whatever, whatever. But, you know, it's like a, just great to get those letters. So um, <laughs> as my another quote of my father is you can't win the jackpot if you don't put a coin in the machine. You know, wait, my, I just want to say my favorite <laughs> quote of your dad from your book is the key to walking on water is knowing where the stones are is one of the right. smartest freaking quotes <laughs> I've ever heard in my life is so good. Well, that's this whole thing is like outsmarting the system for fun as much as for anything. Wait, so do you see this book, pitching this book, writing this book, publishing this book, the same way you viewed pitching that story of the Met fan who caught the foul ball where it's not a book, it's not a Bo Jackson book, it's not a Chicago Bears book. It's a book, it's a book only you would pitch sort of book. So when I'm between things, I'm thinking like, what do I really want to write? And I feel like I never really know what I want to write, you know? I don't know, I'd like to ask you how you come by ideas. I'm curious about that. I mean, it's like, so um, it always does come back to my father. So when I pitched the book, I mean, my editor is Jonathan Glossy, he's an incredible editor. And he sort of, we've been doing this together for a long time. I mean, the first book I wrote with him was called Sweet and Low about my grandfather invented the sugar packet and invented Sweet and Low. And there's this big family fight about it. So there's a tradition of, of me and him working on this. But for my, I was like the book that I thought of uh, when I wanted to write this was This Boy's Life. Because mm -hmm. I freaking love that book and I read it late and I felt sympathetic to the way he tells that story. I thought this is how I'd like to tell a story about my father. And um, if a book like that succeeds, if it fails, no one's ever heard of it. If it succeeds, it could be Tuesdays with Maury or something. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's the same thing with Seabiscuit. Tuesdays with Maury is a right. example. Right. You're always shooting for that. The problem is you know, you never really understand the, the market for books is changing all the time. Like today I was reading and my father's book came out in the fall of 1980. Okay. His book, when he wrote it, he never written a book. He's not a writer. He's a speaker. He's a negotiator. And he literally went down. He had all this material he didn't know what to do with because he was changing the material. He went into our basement and came up six months later with a book. It was the worst way to write a book you could possibly imagine. He lost 40 pounds. We forgot he was down there. He just hear him screaming for coffee and someone had to bring him coffee. And it was this unfinished basement that was disgusting and it flooded every time it rained and it was raining all the time. And um, it was rejected by like 20 publishers because it was a new kind of book and that it was a business book, but also a how to book about families and stuff. So he, it's, he kind of, but when he, when it came out, it's called, you can negotiate anything, how to get what you want. I thought, talk about two huge promises. It, I read in the paper today that inflation right now, it's higher than it was, highest it's been since 1981. That's when his book came out. And you could see why in that period of time, why having somebody say, you don't have to go into Sears and pay $500,000 for a dishwasher, you can get it for 250 bucks and I'll show you how. Well, that would be so appealing right at that moment where people were pinched so hard. So you forget like with books that are hits, like what was going on when it came out at the time because I've had books that have been very successful and books that have been, that have not succeeded commercially at all. And usually it's, you hit something in the zeitgeist and you don't know what it is and you can't predict it, you know? Yeah. And um, from the beginning, I thought at least I, my goal is to write a good book that I want to write that I feel like is honest to me. And then if it fails, it's depressing, but I wrote a good book. If I write a kind of a sellout book that fails, there's nothing. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does actually. Wait, I just want to explain to people listening. This is from page five of your book, a little bit of background on your dad. My father's name Herbert Cohen, but most people call him Herbie. To grandma Esther, he was Herbella. To childhood friends, he is at his own insistence, Hansomo. 
Mr. Stunning or the Elder Statesman. In professional circles, he is Herb Cohen, an expert in the art of the deal and the author of You Can Negotiate Anything, a publishing phenomenon that came out of nowhere in 1980 to sell more than a million copies. He's a speaker, a guru of the corporate retreat, a consultant to governments and companies, the gun hired to work out the terms and close the deal, the wise man helicoptering in to settle the strike. He helped resolve the Major League Baseball umpire strike in 1979, as well as the New Orleans police strike the same year. He advised Jimmy Carter during the Iran hostage crisis in 1980 and 1981. He advised Ronald Reagan during the summits with Gorbachev in 1985 and 86. He was part of the American team at Geneva during the strategic arms reduction talks in the 1980s when he went eyeball to eyeball with the Ruskies. That's a quote. And learned what he calls, quote, the Soviet style. He helped settle the NFL player strike in 1987. He trained G-men in spooks. He was a prisoner in the field of game theory and helped set up the FBI's behavioral science unit. The famous term he might well have coined, win-win, comes from the game theory, which, according to Herbie, focused on potential outcomes, including win-lose, lose-win, lose-lose, and win-win, which he merely proposed from academic study to human relations. And yes, he's lectured at Harvard and Yale and worked for many Fortune 500 companies, uh, including IBM, Apple, Google, General Motors, Sony, and Samsung. It's freaking yeah. awesome. Wait, when you were yeah, when you were growing up with it, like my dad was a was a CPA who started his own business, and my dad self published a book that probably sold three thousand copies. And to me, he was God. Like to me, in my little eyes, my dad publishing a book and just seeing it in Walden Books at the Jefferson Valley Mall was enormous to me. So yeah, your dad, you're growing up. Is your dad? uber enormous to you or did you not see it until later on well i think there's like your dad is like a great figure to you or he's not so i don't think there's a i probably saw my dad at the same level you saw your dad you know and um but my father was had a big personality and he was a brooklyn guy in the midwest and it was i always said it was like a fish out of water story there was no one really like him and where I grew up, people were very polite and very standoffish, and he was sort of involved with everybody. I always said he had a talent of turning every place into Brooklyn within five minutes. We moved into our town in Illinois, and he was out back smoking a cigar with the owner of the local deli within five minutes. And when people would ask him where he was from, it was a running joke in my life. He'd always say, me, I'm from Cheyenne, Wyoming. <laughs> and people would just, they'd freeze. And they'd say, what do you do for a living in Cheyenne? he go, I'm a Presbyterian minister. And some people actually, it was like his, his gag. So... Then when the book came out, I was aware of it because suddenly it was everywhere. And teachers gave me a lot of crap in school about you can't negotiate anything in this class. It took a lot of crap for that. And um, but mostly I didn't really like a lot of what he did. You sort of I don't I really believe him. I, I didn't really I would only believe him, like he gave me Super Bowl tickets because Gene Upshaw gave him Super Bowl tickets. You know, so I'm like, oh, maybe he really does do something with the NFL. And whenever we go to baseball games, you get to go out on the field because he knew all the people and everything. But he was just kind of regular knock around guy. And um, like when I'm out talking about this book, I've been getting all these emails. Like I, I, there was a Chicago story about the book in the Chicago Tribune. And the, we got an email from this guy who ran the Chicago public, the Chicago police this is through Rick Kogan, who wrote this great story about me. He's a great writer. Chicago police guy who set up the SWAT team about how he went and met my father. My father taught them how to negotiate with people holding hostages. And what's great to me about this is this is a made up field, man. This is like the guys who went out and started Hollywood. Nobody taught this. This was just stuff that he learned when he was a kid. And he would tell you, if you asked him, how did you learn to negotiate with terrorists? He'd say, when I was 
15, a kid took a dog hostage in Bensonhurst and wouldn't release it unless a girl went on a date with him. I negotiated the release of the dog, you know. And then he was grew up, he was in a little gang when they were kids called the Warriors. And in that gang was Larry King, not called Larry King. And Larry King used to tell these stories on the radio about my father, including one that he told, Larry told on Jimmy Kimmel about when there was a kid, you can look it up, there's a kid they grew up with named Mapo who got sick and my father came up with a plan to tell everybody he was dead and raise money for his funeral. So that's like this amazing, crazy story. But I used to lie in bed at night and listen to Larry on the radio tell these stories. That's amazing. This is going to sound weird. I always compare when Donald Trump came along. I thought a lot about Barry Bonds because I thought what Uh those two guys had in common was an ability to walk through anything. They were not concerned by the peripheral distractions of it all. If you're not allowed for bonds, if you're not allowed to have a massage therapist in the clubhouse, he would say, well, I don't care. I'm bringing my massage therapist and nobody would stop him because he just walked through it and knew how to walk through it and pass social norms. Did your dad have that to a certain degree, an ability to walk through situations? Well, he had an ability to focus, to close things out. And but his thing is, he believes that people will mostly give in to any kind of authority. So his whole thing is about questioning authority. So one of the big things he said to me when I was a kid is do not put your trust in princes. It might be from Shakespeare. Okay. And the thing is that he also told me that almost everybody you're going to meet is a complete moron and operate from that principle, you know, that you're smarter than most of these people. It's just how he, and if you, if you want to do something, you can feign authority and people will buy it. This whole thing about negotiating was you're intimidated by this big corporation and you don't have to be, you might feel weak, but you have power, even if you don't realize it is that you go around and say power is based on perception. If you think you got it, you got it, even if you don't got it. So I, I saw something optimistic and idealistic about his, what he believed, which is he wanted to empower people that seemed like they that felt weak and powerless. And one thing like the Barry Bond story you just told is one thing my father would say is you want to bring everybody with you. So he wasn't about alienating or lording it over people breaking their rules. He wanted to make other people feel good about the experience they had with him so he could do more business with them. And um, that's the whole thing with win-win, which is ultimately win-win is the only way to do it. Because if you create a situation where it's win-lose, then you don't have really solved the problem. You've just set up the seeds, planted the seeds for the next problem. When you humiliate people or drive too hard of a bargain, the thing is going to ultimately fall apart. If you want it to work, everybody has to come away from the experience feeling like they got something good out of it. Otherwise, long-term, it's just no, it's just not going to last. So weirdly, when I reread his book while writing my book, I mean, I heard him read the whole thing out loud when I was a kid. It came away as really, especially now when nobody can agree on anything and he didn't have to deal with social media and all that. And everybody's at each other's throat without a second of reflection. It's just the opposite. His whole thing is go slow, use time. And sometimes the best response is no response. And the best thing to do is just wait. And one thing he always said is people will support things they create. So if you're trying to create a solution, you want to get people that in the opposition to feel like they helped create it, even if they didn't just feel like they had input and they helped create it. And if they feel that way, then they're going to, they're going to make it succeed. Now, were you able to, uh, it's one thing to get your dad to sort of tell you all these things and to give you all these lectures. Are you actually able to implement most of them in your life or is it a little easier said than done? I'm not great at it as far I'm a terrible negotiator to the point where I just told you off the air about this house in Montclair I tried to buy. Okay. And this is like 
one of those moments where I realized, oh my God, it, what he said is right, was we were, my wife and I needed to have somewhere to live. We'd sold our apartment. We had nowhere to live. We kept getting outbid for these houses. I said, let's just offer the asking price and then it'll be the end of it. So we called these people up. We met their asking price. And I told my father, he's like, big mistake. You're not getting that house. I'm like, we offered it. He's like, nope. He goes, what do you think those people are going to think? They're going to think, great, we got our asking price. They're going to think, God damn it, we didn't ask for enough money. We lost money. And they're going to be unhappy. And they're going to look for a way out of the deal. And sure enough, they, they countered on their own asking price. They asked for more money than their asking price. And in a big fit of uh, irritation, I moved to a town I didn't knew nothing about, which is where I've lived ever since. So, um, so but I'm not good at that. But what the, the other thing is, his thing is, my father is this guy like, listens to a Frank Sinatra song, starts to cry and says, don't you get it, you idiot? It's not about a ballpark. It's about life. Everything for him that he cares about, it's about life. Everything's about life. So um, I think that his bigger thing, which is his big thing is to be successful in life, you have to care, but not that much. You should approach life as a game. You should always be willing to walk away and you should not become attached to a particular outcome. And he'd always say that when I'd come to him with a problem when I was a kid, he'd say, it's just a walnut in the batter of life, just a yeah. blip on a radar screen of eternity. And that attitude, which is kind of put it in perspective, don't take yourself too seriously, laugh at yourself and have fun. That's what I took from him. It's one of the great lessons of all time. It's one I got from my dad too. And I tried to instill my kids, which is all these problems that seem like my daughter yesterday came home crying over her new work schedule. And I'm like, a week from now, you will not be thinking about this. So just keep that in your but head. But kids have a totally different. So my dad's saying is care, but not that much. And you should never negotiate for yourself because you care too much. Right. And you do a bad job. But when you're a kid, you care too much about everything. That's true. You know, and 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 a week seems like an eternity. That's a problem. Like now you can go from my past experience. I know that in 10 days, I'm not even going to not care about it. I'm not even going to remember it. It's going to be forgotten. So. Um, but one thing he said just recently, my dad's now 89, is he said that the best natural negotiators are kids. He said, because first thing they do is they set very high expectations. So when you ask them what they want for their 16th birthday, they say a car. Now, you're never getting them a car, but they start out by setting the bar so high that you end up giving them more than you want to give them. So it's like an immediate negotiation. So to him, kids are always a perfect example of somebody who seems like there's a huge power differential kid parent, but the kid is able to use what power they do have to get more. You, uh, you mentioned briefly in here, it's uh, Roger Angel in regard to New Yorker and um, Roger Angel wrote this brilliant essay a few years before he died about getting older and people not viewing you with the same relevancy they once did being in a conversation and people hearing you, but then moving on really quickly. Your dad's 89 years old. He's had this really amazing run how has your dad accepted aging? How does your dad handle his own mortality as he gets older and older? Well, first of all, he has lived way longer than he thought he would. So he always, he always talks about himself like Mickey Mantle. He thought he was going to die at 39 or whatever because his father had Hotchkiss disease and lived to whatever, 60s. And said, if I knew I'd live this long, it would have taken better care of myself. Yeah. I think that that's like true of my father, too. He had a heart valve transplant at 59 and he's 89. Yeah, it's unbe actually unbelievable. I mean, he's it's pretty incredible. So, um, but his identity has always been being the like I said, the elder statesman, the old guy. That's oh, so when he would, 
I watch when I was a kid, one of the things I do is watch my brother and him play basketball, these violent, violent basketball games where my father said he's playing by the Brooklyn rules, which is you can make a layup, but you're, you're going to pay for it. You know, going to drive you into the garage door as hard as I can. And he would always say, you can't beat the old guy. You're, this old man is beating you. So I always saw him as kind of this old guy. And he's basically because of that, he's the same. I mean, and he uses his age as a way to end any argument. So uh, if I'm in an argument with my brother and I call him, he'll go, look, I'm 89 years old. Look at the actuarial tables. I'm going to be around six months a year. Then I'm gone. I'm dead. Don't make me spend a few of these precious hours left dealing with this crap. Get off the phone and go fix your own problem. You know, but he's been saying that since he was 59 years old. You know, so I think that, I mean, who knows what really goes on inside a person, you know, everybody's, but he seems to be like he has this big view about his place and the whole history of his kids and everything. And people still call him and he still gives speeches and stuff. And he still likes to be relevant. What you said is true about people deciding you're like a short timer. So they shouldn't waste a lot of their own energy on you, which is, I think what Roger Angel's talking about. But uh, I see that he's playing a role he's played my whole life. When you write a book about your father, do you at all concern yourself? Number one, with how he's going to feel about it. And number two, do you think to yourself, are the things I should not use in this book, things that are just not worth it, the collateral damage that can come from this? Yes, absolutely. And I've been dealing with this since the beginning. It's really, it's really since my book, Sweet and Low. And there's a quote I always think of from the book, uh, All the King's Men, the Robert Penn Warren, where the guy says, there's some kinds of a son of a bitch you don't have to be even to be a newspaper man. That's you know? Yeah. So, but basically... What you do is you make the decision, first of all, and you decide to write the book, like you said. If you're going to not be able to willing to tell what you think is the truth, then you shouldn't write the book at all. And then when you're sitting down, I'm sure you have this experience, and you're writing the book, none of that really is an issue. I mean, for me, you're just writing the book. You're like you're inside your own head. So there's so you don't think about it. And then the big decision is later if you actually keep it in. And um, it's just tough. I mean, I don't know what there is stuff that they're, they're, my family's not happy with and there's stuff, you know, it's just one of those things that it's part of being a writer. That's one of the hard things. You write the book, you show them the book at some point, I don't know when, but at some point along the line, you say, here's the book, you know, there's going to be a few things in there. They're not going to love. Are you just hoping they miss it when they read the book or do you prepare them for that? First of all, I prepare them for it. And I think like the, the overall picture is complete, mm-hmm. you know, and, and when you step back, my dad's the guy, you know, walnut in the batter of life. When you step back and look at the whole picture, you might not like this little detail or that little detail, but if you can step back and see the whole thing, you realize that without that, the picture isn't real and it's not as positive in a weird way. You know, if you create a cartoon, everyone just dismisses it the good stuff and the bad stuff all get dismissed. If you want to make somebody live and survive in a book, you got to make them real. And to be real, they have to have, they have to be completely human, which means that they're going to screw up because that's what people do. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's come up with an amazing idea to pitch on Shark Tank. NCT Dream themed Royal Retro's jerseys. You mean the K-pop band? And not just a band, Father. A way of life. Mark, Renjin, Jeno, 
Hey Chan, Chenla. Okay, okay. Mark, Vrenjin, Jay. Oh, Casey, stop. But there are 43 more guys. Seriously, what are you trying to say? I'm saying nobody cares about the USFL anymore. It's old news. But the guys in NCT Dream are so dreamy. So tell your listeners to go to royalretros.com. After buying some sports gear, demand NCT gets fair wardrobe representation. That is never going to happen. But I'm pregnant with Jisung's baby. Still not happening. You've had a fascinating career. I mean, I've watched it happen in real time because we're about the same age and uh, I've seen it. And I've, I have a few a few stops I want to make here. So uh, I'm going through the the sort of joyous experience overall of having a book based on a TV show run, Winning Time on HBO, which has been awesome. And you, uh, you co-created a, a series on HBO called Vinyl that appeared in 2016, ran that season. That experience for you, all good, sort of good, sort of bad. <laughs> disappointing euphoric what was it well first of all and i don't nothing is like you think it's going to be true you know so and everything's double-sided the experience of making the show started out it's, it was great because what it was is at, it's when i started working on what became the show it was i told you that i wrote tough Jews really under the thrall of goodfellas a combination of goodfellas and these isaac babel stories called odessa stories about jewish gangsters in odessa russia and when the book was in manuscript, it started floating around and Martin Scorsese saw it and gave me a blurb and like really liked the book. And it was a real genuine blurb. It wasn't, I didn't know him. No one I knew knew him. You know, he's in a different world. It wasn't the blurb where you get your four best author friends to read five pages no. of your book. It wasn't that? <laughs> I had that because also on that book was uh, Larry King. That was like that. Okay. Oh. That was my dad's best friend giving me a blurb. But the Scorsese thing was real. And then later on, him and Mick Jagger got together and they wanted to create a movie together. They didn't know what it was, just about the music business. And I knew Mick Jagger because I traveled around with the Rolling Stones as a reporter for the Rolling Stones. So I got put up for this because of that book and that experience. And they hired me. And for about three years, this is how Scorsese does stuff. I just went around interviewing old time music executives, most of whom are dead now, like legendary music guys. And... Um, and then Scorsese trained me sort of about movies by, he would say, you should watch this, 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 and this. And he would set up screens for me in Midtown in his office where I'd sit there and watch, you know, The Big Knife or uh, Sweet Smell of Success, something like that, just me and him and him explaining the movie and what we should look for. And then I wrote this script that was going to be a movie. And then ultimately it began this long process of in development, out of development, this studio, that studio, before finally it got... You know, the, the, it was so long that TV became the thing, these streaming shows, and I sort of retooled the pilot of the movie into the pilot in a way with the help of Terrence Winter and other people. So it was a great experience doing it, but that was so protracted and then it only it was, didn't get picked up for a second season. So ultimately, it's a pretty amazing to see. And um, you just want to, you just want, you want to end up writing a show like, uh, even a show like uh, Growing Pains would be good. Something that's been on TV long enough yeah. to get reruns. Happy Days, Growing, uh, even the really crappy shows. But one season just isn't enough, man. You need more. What about you? What's your experience? It's been pretty great, I got to say, overall. I mean, they've, yeah. I've been written, you know, I, I, I read all the scripts. I mark up, say what I think. Uh, they bring me to set. They, you know, ask me, if does this work? Does that work? And, uh, and they pay me. That's but at it. some point, do they outrun your book? Like, do they, like, I just think of like Game of Thrones where they, they ran past the book. 
The thing is, the original book starts in 1979, goes to 91, and the first season was only 79-80. Right. Did you find it hard writing a script? Uh, yeah, I found it a lot easier than writing a book, which probably means I'm not very good at it, is what I have to think, you know? Um, I found it very natural because it's just a lot. I just found it very natural. I mean, but when you look at the really great scripts, a lot of it isn't about the thing you think of as a kid as script writing, which is dialogue and all that. That's sort of secondary and it doesn't matter as much. It's more like uh, the plotting and the characters. You know, I had, I worked on a TV show as a writer, the show called um, uh, Magic City. Uh-huh. Freaking great top, Mitch Blazer. And I met all these um, other people, you know, other TV writers, great TV writers in that room, in that writer's room, like John Mankiewicz and Ted Mann and Nick Pizzolatto, who then did True Detective. And um, and it was really interesting to me because, I, I you know, I've been a, I've been a I, it's ruined me for watching TV shows because you can see whenever a show goes wrong, you're like, oh, that's a writer's room decision, man. That's some writer thought of some stupid freaking idea that just wrecked the show, you know? So when they jump the shark, it's usually something from, well, you know, so, um, but it's interesting to see how they, they plot out those shows. I don't know if you, where by the time you are hired, you're, they said, you write this episode, there's almost nothing to write yeah, because it's so dependent on, you have to have this because it sets up this, you have to have this because it pays off that. And you wind up with writing kind of a little bit of dialogue. The whole thing is the big construction. It's like painting a big giant mural and you just fill in this part of it. So what I like about writing narrative nonfiction like you, I imagine, is like you're in control of everything. I very much had the sense when I wrote a script that as much as I enjoyed this experience, I'm creating a blueprint for Martin Scorsese to create a a work of art, kind of, you know. And And when you're writing the thing, you are in control of everything. You know, basically, so that's more satisfying to create a fin. It's finished when you're done, as opposed to just starting. Also, I get the. Uh, do you want to be in the writers' room? Are you upset you're not not in the writers' room? And my answer is always no. I do not want to be sitting in a room with seven other people going over how to write something. Like I like my isolation. I like being the complete quarterback in my own book. I like controlling what it's going to be. I don't. I I hate collaborative writing. Maybe because I'm an asshole. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I hate it too. I wanted to be in the writer's room just to see what it was like. And what I found, it was mostly about eating. Man, as soon as you walk in there, they hand you, somebody comes in and hands you a menu to order breakfast. And then as soon as you finish breakfast, somebody hands you a menu to order lunch. I mean, I think I gained like 20 pounds in the writer's room. So, yeah, and um, I think that, that's what I think. I think you're much better off being, you know, in control of when you eat, for one thing. Chris Jones was on this podcast a couple of years ago and he had a show and I said, what was it like the writer's room? And he's like, man, it was freaking glorious. It was glorious. Everyone comes in around 10 and all day there's this bowl of Trader Joe's peanut butter cups. Yeah, and it's all when, food, man. when the bowl empties, a PA comes in and fills it up with more peanut butter cups. And it's just right. a stream of peanut butter cups. It's all freaking food, man. It's food from the beginning to the end. And, uh, you know, ultimately, though, it's like it's not really that satisfying. I, I, I found it not that satisfying. Maybe yeah. if I'd been a writer on The Sopranos or something, it would be different. But yeah, I totally agree. 2017, you wrote a piece for Vanity Fair. It was a cover of Vanity Fair. Chris Pratt's called a stardom. It's a cover of it. And uh, your lead real quick was Chris Pratt wanted to cook me lunch. You can tell a lot about a person by the way they cook. 
And not just any lunch, a lunch made from an animal that Pratt himself had killed in Texas, where the mesquite blooms and the buzzards turn and the wild boar does not care, nor even know that the handsome man sighting the scope of a 25 caliber Winchester is one of the biggest movie stars in the world. Best of this new batch. It's never who you expect with hits behind and hits ahead. And Pratt did kill that animal and dressed it and shipped it back to this beautiful house in the Hollywood Hills where he lives with his wife, the actress Anna Ferris, and the four-year-old son Jack. But something went punk at the butcher and the meat was going to take a lot longer to repair than Pratt had expected. So the steak Pratt was basting on the counter in his modern kitchen had in fact been purchased at Whole Foods. Do you enjoy doing celebrity profiles? Well, I, I've had two strings of celebrity profiles. So when I first, my first job, I worked at the New York Observer uh, for like a less than a year. Mm. And then I got hired by Rolling Stone. And Rolling Stone, they started getting me to do celebrity profiles. And I did a whole, an often young starlet. Okay. Because I was very young at the time. I was their age. So, um, so basically I felt like there wasn't that much to say about these people really. Okay. Especially then. So you had to find out what was interesting and was often what was interesting was their human predicament of suddenly being famous. It's just what you ended up writing about. And I kind of feel like I went through that whole thing and uh, I was, I was done. And I, I stopped doing it. And then when I went to Vanity Fair, I wrote stories for them, like military stories. I wrote a story about like Delta Force and it's uh, related to 9-11. And then because I, they excerpted Sweet and Low, this is the story I always heard. Annie Leibovitz said that I, they should have me write a story about George Clooney. And they didn't know I had written like 20 of these things for Vanity Fair, for Rolling Stone. Yeah. So I thought that personally, me, I mean, not personally we're on a podcast, but I didn't think that the Vanity Fair celebrity profiles were that great. And I had this, I knew there had been great ones before. And I knew there had been many great profiles. And I didn't see any reason why the celebrity profile couldn't be as great as, you know, the, uh, the famous celebrity profiles, Frank Sinatra has a cold, gay to lease. But there had been these great profiles Joe Mitchell wrote about, Joe Gould and all this stuff. They could be that. They could emulate to that. So, and, and I, so anyway, I wrote about George Clooney. I really enjoyed it. And then as it went on, I felt like I did it again. Like you can't do it. I, and I enjoyed it less and less and less and less. And um, I have not done one in a long time. And it's sort of a relief. The problem is they get to be a little bit like crack, you know, because unlike other stories, you have to worry, is this going to be, be published or not? If it's a cover story, it's got to be published, you know, and you know the date and you know you're going to get paid and usually get paid pretty well. But in a weird way, the cover story is kind of over because magazines don't sell on newsstands anymore. And the whole point of the celebrity profile is to sell the magazine. You know, it's not to necessarily break news or anything. It's to sell the magazine. And I also realize that so much of the focus is on the photos that the writing for the magazine's thinking becomes kind of secondary to the photos. So in a way, you got to find a way to be interesting beside these photos, if that makes any sense. I always find it interesting. Like, they always start with a scene. Chris Pratt is doing mm -hmm. so-and-so. Halle Berry is doing so-and-so. And what goes kind of unsaid, but it's true, is Chris Pratt knows you're writing about him. You know you're writing about Chris Pratt. So it's not like Chris Pratt is going to fart and burp and tell racist jokes in front of you. Chris Pratt is going to make you a good steak and he knows he's making you a good steak. So is there a way when you do those stories to cut through the bullshit or is it just an accepted part of that relationship? No, I don't think you can cut through the bullshit because that's the whole relationship. There's no relationship other than the bullshit. That's all there is. Yeah. So 
basically that's what I mean. That's what I kind of what I meant when I meant the only interesting thing is the predicament, which means the only interesting thing is the bullshit and sort of being transparent about it, writing about it and figuring it out. I mean, once upon a time, I always said the best time to be a writer, probably a reporter would have been after the telephone and before the publicist, that little moment. That's great. You know? Yeah. But um, now these people are so bottled up with their publicists. You do a story sometime and the publicists want to sit there while you're interviewing a person. That's impossible. Do you say no? You say no as much as you can and then you write about it. And then they get really pissed off that you wrote about it. You know, this is the craziest one. I did three covers, three stories about Angelina Jolie for Vanity Fair. Okay. And Angelina Jolie was the smartest at dealing with this situation because she knew that she'd always give you a story. Okay. And it's not like you're Bob Woodward here trying to find out Watergate when you do these, you only have a few days and you have to have a very quick, interesting take. And they give you a story. Usually you'll be grateful to get a story if they're working on some project or they're giving you something to write about. And she did that every time. And she realized that if you don't give a writer something to write about, they're going to go find some and what they find might not be what you want. So she was the savviest person I dealt with in that regard. I'm trying to think of if there's any celebrity profile I wrote where I felt like I was getting the person, the real person. Probably Chris Pratt was the closest. Yeah. Who I wrote multiple profiles about, but even that it's, it's all the bullshit. That's all there is. What's your worst experience ever writing about a celebrity? What's her name? Uh, the, you know, the actress in, um, who plays Tanya Harding. Margot Robbie. Yeah. So that was a weird one because something clearly, I don't know the whole story cause I'm, I'm sitting at home and they call me up and they say, can you write a Margot Robbie story in basically like 30 hours? So something must have happened. Something must have gone wrong. Uh-huh. And I'm like, ah, I'm like sitting down to watch the Rangers game. And I've got a big sandwich. I'm like, no, I got, you know, there's no reason. And they're like, we really need you to do this. Da, da, da. And um, I'm like, I can't write about her because now I'm like a middle-aged guy and she's like a young woman. And I'll, this is already this current moment. and I'll get a lot of crap for it. And they insisted I wouldn't. And I insisted I would. And finally I decided Vanny Fair, these are my friends at Vanny Fair. They, they're in a jam and they've been so good to me that I'll do it. So I had to go into the city and I got basically like an hour with her. So, and then I became, you know, eviscerated on Twitter and everything for writing about her. Basically, that's how it seemed to me. So anyway, what that tells you is you need more time man. you can't take, even though I understand what the mission is, which is the pictures are taken, the image is going on the cover and you have to just go find something to write about. You need to take a much longer period of time to get to know these people. And in a weird way, I think that the, it's good that the celebrity profiles kind of, I think, maybe it's because I'm not writing anymore. I think that they're kind of dead because I think the medium change and they, the covers aren't what they used to be, just like album covers aren't what they used to be. Okay, so I went in back when I started writing, I'm thinking, I'm gonna write the celebrity profile with the uh, seriousness of intent that you write any other profile in a magazine. Right. and and people are writing these bullshit stories and I'm going to write a true story. And at the end of all of that, I think that I didn't do it either because it's impossible to do because the relationship is just not real and it's bullshit. So if you pretend that it's a real relationship, that's bullshit. And if you expose it as bullshit, well, that's just bullshit too. It's we- It's a weird thing. 
Was Margot Robbie not feeling the experience? Was she like, I don't really want to be doing this? No, I mean, it was like she was in the middle of a lot of busy stuff. I don't know what happened. She'd probably already done a bunch of interviews for all I know. I don't, I don't know. And she was in, it was a day of the, uh, that big, fa- Anna Winter's big fashion thing, which was like, a, she had to go start getting dressed. So she came down and sat with me for like 40 minutes at her hotel restaurant because that's all there was. Right. You know, and I felt like I was sort of helping people out in a jam. Yeah. You know, and whatever. I liked her. I had no problem with her, but I didn't know her at all. I met her for just a few minutes and I didn't even really know her that well as an actress. Just um, the Jordan Balfour movie that she's in, the Scorsese movie. I just want to say my favorite passage you've ever written, I think, was in your book, The Chicago Cubs Story of a Curse. And you wrote about one of my least favorite, favorite baseball players of all time, which is Dave Kingman. And I say least favorite, favorite, because I grew up watching him with the Mets. And when it was just him and George Foster in the middle of the lineup and you're too young and dumb to know, you think you look at the back of the baseball card. Right. And you'd be like 35 runs, 98 RBIs. And you you just don't look at the 222 batting average at 180. Right. And you wrote, it's strange how a player hits so many home runs and not just regular home runs, but God balls so high. They go all the way up to heaven can leave such a bad taste in your mouth. It was his body and countenance, his mustache and those cold, angry eyes, the mean way he carried himself, not just in Chicago, but everywhere he played. Kingman, a lumpy six foot six. I love that. A lumpy six foot six <laughs> was a parody of the haughty ball player, the anti-banks, the man who seemingly stays in the game, not because he loves it, but because nothing else pays as well. He'd exaggerated the Babers swing to the outer limits, darting at the heels, swinging for the moon. It was feast or famine, monster shot or strikeout. The nicknames that attached to him suggest a dichotomy. He was known as King Kong, but also Ding Dong. You can never win with a guy like that. For one, he looked miserable out there, having no fun at all. Of course, you can't discount all those home runs entirely. On and on and on. Love everything about Kingman. I mean, you could have written a book about Kingman. I would have bought a Dave Kingman book. <laughs> I mean, it, it's true, though. It's like When you look at the statistics and you can't figure it out, so... Like I was really into baseball statistics and players of the past when I was a kid. And I don't know if you ever like looked at the statistics of Babe Herman who played for the mm. Dodgers and the Cubs, but he hit like 393 times and he batted like, you know, he hit like 50 home runs. And you're like, why isn't this guy up there with Ted Williams and everybody? I mean, his statistics are insane. And then you have to go back and read what people wrote about him at the time, which is he was a total freaking buffoon who made, you know, so – uh, one of the one of the sports stories that I loved when I was figuring out how to write sports stories by John Lardner, and it was about Babe Herman, and it said the lead was Babe Herman's never tripled into a triple play, but he has doubled into a double play, which is the next best thing. <laughs> you know, so, and it, you know, you really in this guy. So what's missing in a lot of stuff is the personality, and you just get the statistics. So I always felt like Kingman hated us, like I'm, when us, I mean the 10 and 12 year old fans, like he just hated us. And he lived in a boat, I think in Chicago. And he, it was just a very weird time. And especially as a Cubs fan, which you didn't realize at the time, which is you're kind of living in the ruins of the 69 Cubs, which is arguably the best baseball team that didn't win a world series, you know, and that they had, I think in a hall, all all all-star infield, they had like five hall of famers, and then win the World Series. And then what? Ha- it's an interesting question to me. Like, what happens to a great team that doesn't win? It becomes poison. And slowly, piece by piece, these players start to leave. Banks retires. Kenny Holtzman goes out to Oakland. 
Uh, Billy Williams goes to Oakland. You know, Santo goes and plays for the White Sox. That's when I came in, man. So instead of you got this kind of wreck and ruin of a team, I just felt like we were growing up in the ruins of Rome and had no idea. Just every now and then you'd be digging in the backyard and you discover like some head of an emperor and be like, what the hell is this? Totally. Um, Let me ask a final question to wrap it back to your book, The Adventures of Herbie Cohen. How do you promote a book like that? We both written sports books. You write a sports book. It comes to sports media, sports radio, sports TV. Uh, there's a built-in fan base for if you're writing a book about the Cubs or the Bears, you can promote it to them. It's not rocket science. When you have a book about your dad, how do you actually promote that book? What you hope is you hope the book's really good and it connects on a human level and it's about something universal, about everybody's relationship with their father, kind of, and that enough people read it and they'll, by word of mouth, it will happen. That's what you hope. The problem is you need enough people initially. So to do that, you just try to let people know it exists. So that's excerpts. I've written a bunch. Of, I wrote a op-ed in the LA Times about basically my father's rules of negotiating. Now I wrote an op-ed, sort of an essay in the Wall Street Journal about that. Do some radio. And you just basically shout your head off until you collapse and then hope it just, it's like starting a fire. I don't know. Like sometimes you start a fire and you don't even realize you started it. That's how people start forest fires, man. They think they think they put it out, but then a couple of days later they found out that they didn't put it out, that it kept going. So um but it's mysterious. And the book thing is weird because like if you have a, a TV show, like your TV show, um, everybody sees it like a huge number of people just see it in, in an hour mm-hmm. and they've seen the first episode with the book. People buy it, sits around their house for a month. They, they don't read it. They pick it up at somebody else's house, you know, so it's a much slower thing. And everything in the market now, as you know, is all front loaded to the first week, the first two weeks. And they judge books that way, too. And it's, you can't judge a book that way, but they do. I think the model for every book, like it's a book like mine, you, is Breaking Away. Remember the movie Breaking Away? Of course. I loved that movie when I was a kid. It opened like in 10 theaters, you know, in June. And by the end of September, it was going to win the Academy Award. and It was the biggest movie in the country. And it happened very, very, very slowly until people got a chance to see it. So I don't know if America still has the patience for that, but that's what you have to hope for. How do you sell Tuesdays with Maury? How do you do it? That's a great question. To me... Tuesdays with Mari, Boys in the Boat, Seabiscuit are the three books that I think of when it's like, wait, how do those books sell? Not that they're, they're all excellent, so they all deserve to sell. But what was it about those books that caught on and caught on and caught See, on? See, you can't, it can't be reversed engineered. There's a lot of, there's like a great book like Black Hawk Down. Right. How did that sell? I don't know. I mean, you know what I mean? It probably plugged into the news. And, um, I don't know. It's just, it's just gotta be a good book and people got to like it. And then it just got to happen. You got to have some faith that people still can read and like stuff, you know, and, yeah. and pass it along. I mean, it is true when you start with the Cubs or the Mets or something, you start with millions of lunatics who will read anything about the team. And, and then that's just enough to get, if it's a bad book, it won't work anyway, right. but if it's a good book, it will go on its own. But so it's, it's definitely, definitely harder, but I always looked at my father himself as a model which is he sold that his book by hand, man. He got in his car and drove around the country and just kept selling it and selling it and selling it until see the funny thing is his dream was to be on the New York times bestsellers list. And he, uh, to be number one on the list. Uh-huh. It took like six months until the book got on the list. And then it got up to like number two and it could never reach number one because you know, it was number one the whole time. Uh-huh. Cosmos by Carl Sagan which is like the, one of the biggest books in the whole history of the world. Wow. I just want to say, you said um, 
If it's a bad book, it doesn't matter. My book, uh, Sweetness on Walter Payton, got knocked off the list, I believe, by the autobiography of Snooky from the Jersey Shore. Either that book is amazing. Maybe Snooky's autobiography is just the, you know, an amazing book. Or maybe you can have a bad book that succeeds. Well, I, I don't, a bad book can succeed until people read it. Yeah. So a publisher can decide, I'm not an expert on publishing, but they can, they can put enough money into a book and decide we're going to make this book successful. And they do it by putting out so many copies the first week and, and that it just by the sheer force of numbers, it gets on these lists, but then it will fall off the list very quickly. And then they'll be stuck with a lot of books they can't sell. So it's, it seems like a success, but it actually, it's a disaster. It could be a disaster for the publisher, you know, whereas a book like sweetness continues to sell every single year. And as long as there's Walter Payton fans and bears fans, it will sell. So in the long run, that book's going to sell a lot more than the Snooky book. It's just, see, we're looking at it in too short of cycles. That's you got to look at these things. Like, look at my dad's book. My dad's book is, for the first month, it probably sold nothing. It still sells like 35,000 copies a year. That's amazing. And that was published in 1980. Yeah. You know, so if you look at it, and that's what really, that's how publishers survive. It's those books, you know, that make them the money. It's the, having a, the rights to a whole bunch of books that sell 10,000 copies a year. You know, yeah, that's how they do it. Yeah, well said. Uh, I will no longer resent Snooky thanks to this talk. Snooky has her own problems. I haven't followed her very, very carefully, but it seems like she's in a world of trouble. Yeah. Uh, well, Rich, man, thank you. Uh, congrats on the book. Obviously, your career is awesome, fantastic. And I'm glad you got to write this book. I appreciate Well, it. sometimes you write something like, maybe it'll be like your book about Nashville. It's like, this is the whole reason I am a writer, is to write a book like this. Well, thanks for doing yeah. this. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah, thanks a lot. I want to thank today's guest, Rich Cohen, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can find Rich on Twitter at RichCohen2003. Visit his website at authorrichcohen.com and buy The Adventures of Herbie Cohen wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Writers Slinging Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money for doing this podcast and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by The Sizzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing. <laughs>